Without a doubt, the most famous family feud in American history was the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. You know about that too, huh? Everybody does. The feud, however, between these families was real, and it would become deadly. The Hatfields and the McCoys were actually two wealthy families who lived on either side of a river named Tug Fork. That, by the way, geographically represented the border of Kentucky and West Virginia, Tug Fork. As it wound its way around, the McCoys lived on the Kentucky side and the Hatfields lived on the West Virginia side. In 1878, a Mr. McCoy accused Mr. Hatfield's family, one of them at least, of coming across Tug Fork in the cover of darkness and stealing one of his hogs. The offense was serious. In fact, serious back then especially, and it ended up in court. But the McCoys were unable to prove the crime had taken place. And so the Hatfields were let go. It created such a resentment that sometime after the trial, if you can believe it, one of the McCoys actually shot and killed a juror who had sided with the Hatfields. It only escalated after that. In 1882... Four years later, one of the McCoys ran for public office. He was publicly attacked and verbally accosted. He was discredited out there in the open before the election, and as a result, he lost the election. Retaliation became a bloodbath, and at the end of the shooting, Mr. Hatfield's politician-to-be son was dead, as well as three members of the McCoy family who had also been killed. But the fighting didn't stop with that. It actually spread along the border of Kentucky and the border of West Virginia, added to by supporters of either the Hatfields or the McCoys. The feud uh, reached its peak in what would be called in that region the 1888 New Year's Massacre, when several of the Hatfield gang surrounded the McCoy homestead and opened fire on the sleeping family, set the house on fire, in an effort to drive Randolph McCoy out into the open. He escaped as he slipped away unnoticed, but two of his children were killed and his wife left for dead. For 11 years, between 1880 and 1891, this family feud would actually claim dozens of lives from among both of the families, often becoming headlines. In fact, I I learned just uh, recently in studying this event that the governors of Kentucky and West Virginia called up their state militias at one point to try to stop the fighting and restore order. Think of it. It all began with a stolen pig. I would agree with Old Testament scholars that the drama behind the book of Esther includes in some way a family feud. It's not coincidental that the, the, the family tree of Haman is repeated for us in such a short book, as well as the family tree of Mordecai. Bad blood goes all the way back to the book of Exodus in chapter 17, where the Amalekites became, they had the dubious distinction of becoming the first nation to, to go against the people of God in war. 
You may remember that story where if Moses' hands were up, his people succeeded. If his hands fell down, they began to fail. And so uh, his associates held his hands up and they defeated the Amalekites. But that only began the feud. It would last, by the way, 900 years, which is where we find Haman in chapter 3 of Esther about to wipe them out if he has his way, attempting effectively to wipe out the people from whom the promised Savior would be born. And that's the bigger issue, isn't it? But if you go back to 1 Samuel, you get another inclination of the bloodshed between these two peoples. You discover that King Saul has been commanded by God to act in judgment, as Israel often was. They they were the, the sword of judgment from God against the idolatrous nations. And they were to wipe out the Amalekites and King Agag along with them. Instead of obeying God, Saul spared King Agag and kept the best of the herds and flocks for himself. So Samuel, the prophet, comes along and tells Saul, because of that, the kingdom is going to be taken away from you and your throne, given to another. And then Samuel has King Agag executed. Still, the descendants of Agag flourish. The bitterness and the anger and the hostility and the hatred for God and this growing animosity against the people of God festers. It erupts from time to time in in bloodshed. In fact, now here in the book of Esther, this is the ultimate context of the threat. It's going to escalate into bloodshed in an attempt by Haman, who, by the way, is a descendant of Agag. And it will erupt against Mordecai, a descendant of King Saul. In fact, the key verse that gives you sort of the underlying theme of all this is in chapter 3 and verse 10. You might just underline that verse. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman. Who is he? Oh, you need to know this. The son of Hamedatha, the Agagite. The enemy of the Jews. You see, as Ezra is writing this, this account, he, and of course the inspiring spirit is moving him, doesn't want you to miss the real issue here. This is about a lot more than a, a stolen pig. This feud represents the hatred of the kingdom of darkness for the kingdom of light. It summarizes the hatred of The people of God by the people of the world. And you see that erupting, in fact, around the world today. Hundreds of thousands of people will die for Jesus Christ somewhere on the planet this year alone. On the surface, you can travel back to a defeated nation, an executed king, a deposed family, wounded pride, But underneath the surface of Agag's history is the enemy of God, Satan himself, who's been trying for centuries to destroy the covenant nation and therefore null and void the promises of God. King Agag wasn't the first, and Haman will not be the last. Again, you need to understand, this is ultimately a battle, a feud, so to speak, between the family of Satan and the family of God, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And Ezra doesn't want us to miss it. Now with that as a backdrop, let's pick up the drama where we left off at chapter 2 and verse 21. And you'll notice right away Mordecai's been promoted. And I just want to 
point out something about that very first opening phrase in verse 21 of chapter 2. How that in those days Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. It's confusing to us as English readers. When you read that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, you wonder if he was at the end of the driveway. And that doesn't sound like a, a promotion at all. It's raining out there sometimes. It's cold out there. And there he is at the gate. He's got to watch people check their licenses as they come in to see the king. That's not what's happening here. The gate was actually a large building just inside the palace complex. It was the administration building where legal and uh, commercial and civil business was transacted on the king's behalf. So whenever you hear in the Old Testament of somebody sitting at the gate, they're not outside some wooden doors. They're actually within the administration of, of the king inside uh, the palace it's interesting to discover, as the archaeologists have here at the Palace of Susa, which is where this drama is taking place, that the king's gate was a building of about 12,000 square feet. In fact, there is an inscription by Xerxes, Ahasuerus, his throne name, this same king, where he, is, where he is honoring his father for building such a wonderful administrative building. I say that so you understand, to be sitting at the king's gate means that you are now one of the movers and shakers in the kingdom. You're inside the inner circle. You get invited to the office parties of the president. You get that little Christmas gift when the insignia of the company, a logo. In this case, the king's insignia. You're drinking out of of, uh, teacups in your home given to you by the king to put it into our context, he has moved into the West Wing. He's right next to the Oval Office. He's in the place of power. He has achieved his ambition. He has more of it, I'm sure. But he has arrived, thanks to Esther, who no doubt promoted him when she became queen. Now notice again, verse 21, while he was sitting at the king's gate, here's what happened. Bigthan and Teresh, they sound like bad guys, don't they? Bigthan and Teresh. Two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door became angry. They grew in their wrath, literally, and sought to lay hands on King Hazarus. They don't want to shake hands. They want to lay hands on him. Now, we're told what they did for a living in verse 21. They were literally, you could render it, guards of the threshold, which meant that they were standing just outside the doors of the Oval Office. Now, they're the last defense in the line of many defenses. You couldn't see the king unless you got past Bigthan and Teresh. Now, we're not told why their wrath had been growing. We're not told why they wanted to kill him. One of the ancient Jewish manuscripts say they wanted to poison him. But it doesn't take too much of a stretch of imagination once you learn and you pick up on the fact that they are eunuchs, Herodotus, the Greek historian who lived during these days, reported that as many as 500 young boys were gathered from subjugated nations within the empire every year and castrated to serve as eunuchs. This was a, a brutal act that just pictured in one more way how everyone, whether you were a beautiful young virgin or a young boy that he wanted to have serve him, you were property and you were at the disposal of the king. You belonged to him. 
Eunuchs were always entrusted with a king's harem. Many of them, in fact, would become well-trusted leading officials throughout these ancient empires. In fact, one of the most famous eunuchs in the Bible is the prophet Daniel, who was taken by Nebuchadnezzar when he destroyed Jerusalem. Instead of growing bitter, and this is a side note to Daniel's own testimony, instead of growing angry and his wrath building because he was abducted and now his inability to be married and father children and have a home of his own, he instead becomes a faithful and hardworking ambassador ultimately for the true and living God. In fact, he will lead some of those political leaders into faith, faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a wonderful story when you understand the context of his own life. So it's not surprising to learn in Esther chapter 2 that the eunuchs are planning to kill the king. Often in ancient history, eunuchs were part of palace uprisings. In fact, it will be a eunuch who will succeed in a few years in ending this king's life when he slips into his bedchamber at night and cuts his throat. But this attempt fails. Josephus The first century Jewish historian adds to the manuscript evidence telling us that one of the eunuch's servants overheard the plot and went and told Mordecai. Here in verse 22, we read that Mordecai told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king, note this, in Mordecai's name. (laughs) I love that. We're not going to miss any brownie point possibilities here. You need to know, O king, that your, your most loyal administrator... Mordecai has saved your life. And you will expect now some handsome reward. Persian kings were known to do that. For those, of course, who would save their life, you're expecting maybe a pay raise, maybe new office furniture, three more days of vacation, something to say, Mordecai, thank you. And what does the king do? Nothing. In fact, the king, for some odd reason, even though he has it written in his presence into the minutes completely overlooks the matter of Mordecai's reward for his loyalty. So all you read is in verse 23, when the plot was investigated, found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows, and the account was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. That's it. No pay raise, no gold watch. And we'll we'll eventually discover why in chapter 6. God doesn't want the king to do anything until just the right time. In fact, that right time will be just about when Haman is going to succeed then the Lord will bring back this life-saving act of Mordecai to the king's memory when it's right for God's plan and timing. In fact, the king will order Haman to reward Mordecai, even though unknown to everybody at this point, except for his family, Haman just finished building a gallows upon which to hang Mordecai. So God is, God is moving then the chess pieces on the chessboard of human history exactly where he wants them as he eventually moves this entire contest to a a checkmate against the kingdom of darkness. Well, that's the good news, and we're way ahead of the story, so let's go back to the bad news here in chapter two. Well, instead of honoring or promoting Mordecai, let's go to chapter three and verse one. Notice this. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted the wrong guy, Haman. Who is he? Don't forget. The son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. 
and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. You can almost feel now, especially if you've never read this book and you've promised not to read ahead, the tension building, can't you? You need to know why Mordecai is risking everything he has gained by refusing to bow. It really doesn't make any sense. You need to know this is more than just a little, you know, curtsy in the palace, you know, protocol. In fact, whenever these two Hebrew verbs appear side by side, sandwiched in the same verse of Scripture, the same sentence, for bowing and paying homage, whenever they're combined in the Old Testament, they always refer to worshiping and reverencing God. Here's what's happening. Haman is really caught up with himself. They're little gods running around, the king and Haman. King orders, make sure you prostrate like you would before a god. Haman is so caught up with who he is. And and now the prime minister, he looks at his reflection every time he walks by a mirror. Constantly polishing his reflection. Mordecai refuses to bow. I've read several views and their arguments on why he refused to bow. One I read that was that Mordecai's arrogant and upset that he wasn't promoted. Uh, he wasn't interested in court politics. He's just kind of, you know, above it. He doesn't like Haman. He enjoys irritating Haman every time Haman comes in and he refuses to bow. You know, there may be some truth in some of these opinions. <laughs> truth is, we really don't have to guess, do we? Because he tells us why. Verse 4. He won't bow to Haman. Why? He tells his staff. Because he told them he was a Jew. A faithful Jew will never give that kind of reverence to anybody but their God. Listen, for the first time, there's a little glimmer of light in here. Something has happened to Mordecai. For nearly five years, he's been hiding a secret. And he has sworn Esther to secrecy as well. Don't tell anybody you're a Jew. You won't get the crown. And now don't tell anybody because it's going to ruin my upward climb. But now the secret is out. And it's Mordecai, frankly, to everybody's surprise, who leaks this to the press. This was a perfect time to bolster his secret. If he bows, which no faithful Jew would do, he's just going to continue the secret that he's not a Jew. This is perfect. But now he refuses to bow, which, by the way, exposes Esther. People know he had raised Esther. They lived in Susa. He was part of the celebration. He got his job because of her promotion. Anybody's going to connect the dots. Fortunately, Haman can't. He doesn't connect the dots. He's too busy looking at his own reflection in the mirror. If he had him, he would have tried to assassinate Esther before having this edict signed. But it's going to be too late until he realizes it, and when he realizes it, he will have walked into a trap set by our sovereign Lord. But why tell the secret now? Why now? Why risk the power? Why risk his position? I mean, he's finally got an office down the hallway from the Oval Office. He's in the inner circle. 
There could be a couple of reasons why. One of them would be perhaps he's discovered that all this stuff doesn't really matter anyway. He's the proverbial man that climbs to the top of the ladder of success only to discover upon arriving that is leaning against the wrong wall, right? He's been on the inside track for four years and he now knows he's empty. There's got to be more than this. Have you ever been there? And maybe you're just coming to realize that now. You can have everything. And it can mean nothing. Last night I slipped over here because I needed to pick up a book that I'm going to read from in a minute. But I bumped into one of our staff members. His name is Chad. He runs our sports ministry. And we were talking together out there. In fact, I was waiting for my daughter because I brought the wrong keys, so that's a whole story. But anyhow, I'm out there talking to him. And um, he said, Stephen, you know, you, so we were talking about people that had come to faith in Christ in recent days. He said, you probably don't remember my testimony. I said, I don't. He said, I came to Colonial eight years ago. An unbeliever at the top of my game, successful, had plenty of money. And, and he said, but I, I felt empty. He said, so I decided that I would just start going to churches. Protestant, Catholic, whatever. Steeple out there, what, uh, he'll go. And, and he visited dozens of them. He, um, he was raised Roman Catholic and he would go by Colonial and he'd see the cars but he saw Baptists and he knew they were closer to purgatory than any other group and so he didn't <laughs> want to come in. Until finally, frustrated, he said, I had made up my mind that I wanted to find a church where somebody talked about the Bible. He said, I didn't know why, but that just seemed to be my compass. And he said, I finally gave in, and he said, I came. And he said, everybody around me had a Bible. And then you got up and you talked from the Bible. He began to come. He came for about eight weeks. He said to me, you know, I, I had everything but was empty and then at the end of a service, you happened to pray that day a prayer, a sinner's prayer, and I prayed along with you and accepted Christ. His words were just perfect for this. I had everything. And I was empty. Everything felt like nothing. You see, Mordecai has been on the inside for four years. He's got all the perks. He's got the staff. He's got the prestige. He's got the leather chair. He's got a direct phone line to the, to the king. And by the way, his adopted daughter is on the throne. He has arrived. He has everything, but it feels like nothing. There's got to be something else. There's got to be something more. There's got to be something different. Maybe that's your story today, and you're searching. Mordecai knew what it was. He was running from the true and living God, the God of his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was keeping a secret. He was denying who he was, and he was unfaithful to 
to the covenant-keeping God. And I want to tell you something. He's also been inside the kingdom of Persia to know there's got to be a greater kingdom than the kingdom of Persia. What a mess this kingdom was. What a mess. You've got an emotional adolescent sitting on the throne. You've got a prime minister going around polishing his reflection. You've got eunuchs that have been abducted or seething with anger. You've got a growing bevy of women whose lives are being destroyed. There's got to be a, another kingdom beside the kingdom of Persia. And by the way, Esther has lived with the king long enough to also come to grips with the fact that, well, she's seen the king gather another bevy of virgins. She's lived with him long enough to know that she'll never have what she wanted. One author put it well, these two people are disappointed. They're, the depths of their disappointment we can't fully understand, but disappointment is often the nurse of wisdom. Maybe you, too, have seen enough of the kingdom of this world to be disappointed, and you're beginning to have some wise thoughts about God. Mordecai then, for the first time in this book, reveals the secret. I'm a Jew. That's a loaded statement. In that statement, he reveals who his people are. He reveals what his heritage was. He reveals who his God is and the reverence due only to him. And he also reveals to his world, you need to know who I am. There's another, in fact, a, a more explicit reason given, I believe, with the use of these Hebrew verbs. Mordecai surrenders basically to the truth that to reverence anybody but God with that kind of prostration is to break the law of God. And, and no wonder then that uh, J. Vernon McGee in his little wonderful little book on Esther at this point says, I am ready to throw my hat in the air and say hooray for Mordecai. He's taking a stand for God. And every time Haman the hotshot rode through the gate, you know, in the past, you know, Mordecai, I don't know what he did, go to the men's room, or maybe when everybody bowed, he leaned over to the water fountain or something, so the people would think, well, he was part of it. I don't know. But now you can kind of see him set his jaw. And the word is out. The staff have noticed. There have been a few times out in the lawn or wherever. He didn't bow, and they asked him about it. He tells him, here's why I am a Jew. Wow. Perhaps that's the kind of courage for those of us that know Christ need where you go out into your world and you say, I am a Christian. His staff leak it to Haman. And Haman then begins to look. He hadn't noticed it before, but now he watches. Look at verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. He's angry. Why the rage? You got a little man not bowing to you when you come into the office. Big deal. All the other people are. Why so much rage at this? Because of the next verse. He disdained to lay his hands on Mordecai alone. Watch this. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Oh, this is it. This is all that bad blood. This is my deposed forefather. My executed forefather. My loss. 
And so Haman sought, the verse tells us, to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. As far as Haman is concerned, this, ladies and gentlemen, is perfect. He's going to use, this is a gift from his gods. This is in his lap. This is perfect. I can use Mordecai's disobedience as an excuse to settle this family feud once and for all. And, and because of that, he doesn't want just the life of one Jew. That would have been easy. He could have done that that night. He wants to set it up so that it begins an extermination of this people. This is an earlier holocaust in the making. This is, this is a, a more ancient Hitler. He wants to eradicate every single Jew living throughout the kingdom, which, by the way, will include Jerusalem. This is why Ezra is probably so thrilled to be the one chosen by the Spirit of God to give us this account. Verse 7, note. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, poor, that is the lot, was cast before Haman. I think it ought to read about day to day or about every day and about every month until the 12th month, which is the month Adar. If you skip down to verse 13, we're told that the lot will indicate the most propitious day for exterminating the Jews was the 13th day of the 12th month. Here's what's happening. Ironically, by the way, Haman is the only person so far to seek the advice of his gods. So what he's done is he's called all the, all the voodoo doctors into his home to cast... Uh, the lot, the poor, literally the dice. The word poor is an Akkadian loan word that can be rendered stones. Uh, these are shaped like modern day dice, a little larger, marked on all six sides. They were made of baked clay. And there, he, he's having these, these uh, spiritists, these animists, uh, cast the dice under the auspices of seeking the will of their gods to find the lucky day on which to attempt to kill all the Jews. And it just so happens to land as they work through the whole calendar. They work through the entire calendar. Not that day. No, it's not that day. Those aren't good numbers. Those aren't good numbers. Oh, there you go. That's it. That's the day. The day was the 13th day of Adar. You know why that's so significant? Because that's the day before the celebration of Passover. To the Jews, it's an incredibly significant day. Happens to be the day before they celebrate their rescue from certain death in Egypt by the grace of God who keeps his promise. Now, there's no mention of Passover. Many of the Jews living throughout the Persian Empire probably didn't even celebrate it. This is God's way of bringing the conscience of his people back to life. Returning their hearts back to him. God is undoubtedly reminding the Jews of their history, which they had for the most part forgotten, but they're going to remember it now. You can't miss it. Listen, even though the hand of God is invisible... The grace of God here is unmistakable. This is a clear working of a gracious, covenant-keeping God. Now, the storm clouds are still going to gather. 
and a death warrant is going to be signed in the law. I'll sort of overview it, but look here at the clever approach of Haman before the king in verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. They're treasonous. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. It's a nice way of saying, good reason, king, to put them all to death. Now, Haman obviously knows what buttons to push in this king's life. The king has in his painfully recent memory the rebellion of his favored wife and her, many historians believe, her execution. He has in his painfully recent memory the defeat of his navy by the Greeks and the humiliation of his army also by the Greeks. He now has in even more recent history an assassination attempt on his life by two of his most trusted, I trusted those guys, people. In other words, the smell of any kind of rebellion, O king, needs to be stamped out. You never know what might happen if you let it go. We got to take care of this. He's got the king's attention. And then Haman sweetens the pot. He says, and oh, by the way, middle part of verse 9, I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the king's treasury if you let me do this. That's nearly 400 tons of silver. Uh, that's a lot of money. Where's he going to get that kind of money? From the Jews that he dispossesses. Just as the Jews during World War II were stripped of their bank accounts and their businesses and their possessions and the Third Reich became incredibly wealthy. More about the Third Reich in a minute, but first the king said, effectively you're speaking my language here. Here's my ring. Verse 10, I don't want your silver or your people or the people. Scholars believe this is nothing more than Middle Eastern posturing. I don't really need this, but yeah, I'm going to get it. In fact, later on in chapter 4, we know that it will be expected by the king for Haman to pay up. Notice verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate. How many times can you say the same thing? These are all piled on so that there is no loophole. It's kind of like in our American system of jurisprudence. Somebody can serve two life sentences. How do you do that? Or ten life sentences. Uh, the more there are, the, the less of a loophole. What this is, uh, and many scholars believe this is an actual quote from the edict. There will be no loopholes. They will be killed. If you're not certain what that means, destroyed. If you're not certain what that means, annihilated. Who among the Jews? Well, let's make sure you understand that. The text says, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day, the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. Now, this edict is, is describing immediately what is going to happen nearly a year later. What that means is the entire kingdom of Persia has an opportunity to get ready for this day of slaughter. And Haman is thinking to himself of the Jews 
escaped Egypt. They will not escape Persia. You can only imagine the king of darkness wringing his hands with delight. Haman says, listen, they don't belong to the kingdom. They're different. They're not one of us. Let's choose a day to get rid of them. Reminds me of an evening just 73 years ago. Just 73 years ago. Called the Crystal Night. So named because of the uprising and the spontaneous violence against the Jews throughout Germany and Austria. It had been building. It was so named the Crystal Night because of the shattering of the glass of Jewish businesses and homes and the looting that took place. For a year they had or two, the Jews had been marginalized in the Western world. They're different from us. And that eventually leads to they're a threat to us. And by the way, they don't belong to this kingdom. And look how much of my stuff they've got. That's ours. Exactly what will be happening here for a year now. The Jewish people in Persia are going to be marginalized. They're going to be treated with suspicion. Friendships are going to end quietly, quickly. Jewish businesses will dry up. The people will be avoided, suspicioned, envied, hated, and destroyed. They have nowhere to run. They have nowhere to hide in the entire kingdom. They're different from us, king. And that's a threat. Himmler himself echoed the words of Hitler when speaking of the Jews 75 years ago. And I quote, They do not belong to the same species. They're different. In fact, he would go on to say, They are as far removed from us as animals are from humans. And so Hitler's troops would chant, as they marched along these unthinkable lyrics translated into English, which read, Sharpen the long knives on the pavement stone. Sink the knives into Jewish flesh and bone. Let the blood flow freely. Where does that kind of hatred come from? Where does that kind of violence originate? I'll tell you where. It does not originate in the heart of the king of Persia. It does not originate in the heart of the prime minister. It originates in the heart of the king of darkness. That's where. Satan is the ultimate Jew hater. In fact, his, his last uh, gasp you know, of defiance is going to take place at the end of the book. We studied Revelation for a few months, didn't we? You get to chapter 20. And you find out that it's one final assault upon the people of God. Why? Because if Satan can destroy the nation, he will destroy the promises of God, making them null and void. And if God cannot keep his promise, he can't be, he cannot possibly be God. And so throughout the history of humanity, 
Satan has attempted to wipe out the Jew for first reasons. Obviously, from the Jew would come the Redeemer, the line of the tribe of Judah, and Satan failed in that. And then to a people that God has promised will be reconstituted as a nation again in the land, serving the king, the descendant of David. And so he is bent on destroying the possibility of that from ever taking place. That's why the pages of history are stained with the blood of the Jewish people. That's why there have been so many Hamans throughout time. They're, they're deceived. They're goaded along by Satan into mounting an offensive, which is ultimately an offensive against God. Back to more recent history. Many do not understand, and of course you won't read this in your secular history books, connect the, the work of Hitler with his devotion to Satan. Satanism, occultism, which he was deeply involved in. He hated Jesus Christ. He hated the church. He called Protestants dogs. Thousands of Protestants were sent to the concentration camp. In one particular book that I have read from cover to cover, uh, Lutzer's wonderful little book called Hitler's Cross gives a lot of insight from, from manuscripts and letters and documents. In the Hofburg Library in Vienna, there was a spear believed to be the spear that pierced the side of Christ. Of course, it's just simply superstition and animism, but behind the animism is, is Satan who will use whatever vehicle he can to influence the lives of people. So one day, Adolf Hitler, who was 21 at the time, I believe, is standing in that library and he hears a tour guide tell people looking at that spear what it was and then saying this, and I quote, this spear is shrouded in mystery. Whoever unlocks its secrets will rule the world. Later Hitler will say, those words changed my life. So he goes over to this library nearly every day, standing before the spear. He makes a vow to follow Satan. He would come and stare at that spear for hours, inviting its hidden powers, and I'm reading, to invade his soul. He believed that this ancient weapon was a bridge between the world of sense and the world of spirit. Walter Stein, who befriended Hitler in his early years, his 20s, said that Hitler would stand before that spear, and I quote, like a man in a trance, a man over whom some dreadful spell had been cast. The very space around him seemed enlivened with some kind of ghostly light. He appeared transformed as if some mighty spirit now inhabited his very soul, creating within and around him an evil transformation. And you think about it, what else could, what else could account for the mesmerizing sway of this man over the masses? And, and the terror that, that world leaders felt the very first time they met him. I believe nothing less than satanic power. This was, I believe, Satan's choice. This was only his latest in his search for the Antichrist. And Satan doesn't know the future, and he failed again, of course. I found it interesting that when Hitler eventually invaded Austria and marched victoriously into Vienna. The first thing he did was he went into that library, got that spear, and he held it in his hands and said, and I quote, I am now holding the whole world in my hands. This is an old family feud. And he too would hear the whisper of divine providence as he failed to be the final Antichrist, 
Satan had been looking for. He would hear, along with Haman, who will hear in a few chapters, the whisper of divine sovereignty whispering, check, mate. Checkmate. God owns the chess pieces. In fact, he owns the chessboard. He owns the table upon which the chessboard sits. He owns the land upon which the chessboard stands. He owns everything. Everything. And mankind moves around by virtue of their will, but their will does ultimately his will, accomplishing his purposes. And what was God doing as he moved the pieces around to fulfill his will? I'll tell you what he's doing in Esther chapter 3. He is preparing his people to remember that even in Persia, not just in Jerusalem over there, that broken down old city, Nehemiah hadn't yet come along to rebuild it, not just there, with uh, you know, the, 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 the dusty remnants of the temple, but in Persia, he is sovereign. Not just in here does he have his sway, but out there. What's God doing? He's bringing the Jewish people to the theme of the book. They're not going to find any help from their government, they're not going to find any help from their friends. They're not going to find any help from their uh, relatives. They're not going to find security in their bank accounts. They can't hide at home. They can't hide at work. Humanly speaking, there is nothing they can do. There is nowhere for them to run, which is exactly where God wants them. Maybe that's what he's doing in your life too. This is where you are. Let me read you one more testimony that came out of more recent history in the attempt of Satan to destroy the Jew. And I quote, in June 1937, Dr. Niemöller preached his last sermon during the days of the Third Reich. If you read Bonhoeffer's biography, as I am right now, Niemöller compromised earlier on, but later on took a stand with great courage. You can imagine preaching this in Germany at the height of Hitler's power. And I quote from his sermon, We have no more thought of using our own powers to escape the authorities than the apostles of old. No more are we ready to keep silent at man's request when God commands us to speak. For it is and must remain the case that we must obey God rather than man. What courage. Within a few days of that final sermon, he was arrested and imprisoned. His trial began on February 7th, 1938. During the previous seven months after his arrest, he had been, he'd been sent into solitary confinement. He heard from no one. And he wondered about his family and his church. The indictments against him comprised 14 pages. He was considered treasonous. He had spoken against the Reich which is a nice way of saying he was speaking things that were not politically correct. And that's where we're headed to. He had violated the law, and this was his charge. Quote, abuse of pulpit. Abuse of pulpit. Now, he would later tell the story, a green uniformed soldier came and escorted him 
from his seven months of solitary confinement to the courtroom, and alone with his soldier escort, he walked, filled with dread. Niemöller knew that the outcome of the proceedings was a foregone conclusion. He had, he had heard from no one, no friend, no church member. Then at that moment, he had one of the most amazing experiences of his life. His military escort had so far not uttered one word, but walked with regular military footsteps, his face impassive. But as they passed through an underground tunnel and were about to walk up the last flight of stairs, Niemöller heard a voice repeating a set of words. So quietly it was difficult to know where it was coming from because of the echo. And then he realized it was his escort softly repeating, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. <laughs> Can you imagine? Niemöller was climbing the steps by now. Gave no sign that he had heard the words. But his fear was gone. And in its place was calm trust in God. His tower. He was condemned, sent to a concentration camp where he languished for seven years. At the end of the war, he was liberated along with everyone else, and he lived to tell the story. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know what an invisible God is doing centuries earlier? He's setting the stage for his people to rediscover that he alone is their strong tower. When everything else is unjust, he isn't. When no one else cares, he does. When everyone else gives up, he won't. When no one seems to notice, he does. Even when God seems distant, he is present. Even when God seems removed, he remains sovereign. Amen? You know what God is doing in Esther chapter 3? He's moving the chess pieces of history so that his people will once again discover that he alone is their rock and their strong tower. And perhaps he's doing the very same thing in your life right now. Run to him. Run to him. In that running and in that safety, life doesn't necessarily get easier. This man will spend seven years in a concentration camp. But he will never pillow his head and say, you know, my life is empty. Never. Maybe God has brought you to this point of wisdom and recognition Maybe as a Christian, it, it's time for you to take a stand. Maybe you've been caught up in pursuing the stuff and the perks and the connections and the power of the kingdom of Persia, which will not last. Maybe your jaw needs to be set. And your eyes unwavering. 
and your testimony come out of hiding, which has only brought you anguish of heart and soul because you know you have been betraying your faithful God. On that campus, in that set of cubicles, in the shop, the neighborhood, the family. Why don't you tell the Lord what you'd like to do? And while you're doing that, perhaps I'm speaking to someone here who resembles Chad. You have so much, but you've come to recognize it doesn't mean anything. The philosopher said that there is a hole in your heart and it's shaped in the form of God. Only God can fill it. You'll only find rest when you rest in him. And maybe you need to pray a simple prayer and follow along in your heart as I pray it. Lord, I believe the gospel. In fact, I've, maybe I haven't even denied it before, but I've never made it mine. I believe he died on a cross, but I've never claimed you as my sin bearer, my redeemer, my sacrifice. I trust that I'll get to heaven by myself and a little bit of you, but I place my entire faith in you alone today. Save me. Forgive my sin, past, present, and future. Become the Lord and master of my heart and life. No matter what comes or happens, I want to thank you for giving me the gift of everlasting life. Even though my life might get harder from here on out, I thank you that you've come into my life. And I will never again be empty. If we can help you along this way, it will be our joy. 